that digital noise episode was really great. It was, wasn't it? Probably our best yet. How are the comments on it? I don't know. Let me check. What the? It's gone. What? How? I have no idea. I mean, a, a virus, malware, Illuminati? What's going on here? Oh, wait, no. We we actually haven't recorded it yet. Shit, I did not see that coming. All right, let's get to work. I'll set up the equipment. You grab Wait, allow me. By all means. Beer! Salutations, media files, and welcome to another high-definition episode of Digital Noise right here on oneofus.net. This is the weekly Blu-ray DVD review podcast that is always plugged in, never tuned out, and tends to get great reception. <laughs> it does indeed. Just tune in. We're at 9,000 on your AM dial. <laughs> <laughs> AM radio is still a thing. That that continues to baffle me a little bit. Wouldn't it be weird if we like just said, screw the internet, and just put the whole thing on ham radio? Yes. <laughs> Let's do that. The entire website, everything is only available on ham radio. Breaker Breaker 1-9. This is Digital Noise coming at you from the road. Watch out for Smokey. Put you in the pokey. Uh, yeah, what was I talking about? I Any- have no idea. <laughs> Things got really smoky in the bandit here all of a sudden. I am your host, Brian Salisbury, you lucky devils, you, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, a man who is always pixel perfect, Mr. Christopher Lawrence Cox. Actually, this week, the part of Chris Cox will be played by Murdercopter. Murdercopter! Thank you, it's great to be here. That's a, that's a reference to our, uh, our commentary with Mr. Jeff Schusler from Rage Select, of a good day to die hard, which actually today is the last day will be available for free to everyone, and then is only going to be available in the forums to our subscribers. And hey, speaking of subscribers, this would be a really great time if you haven't already to become a subscriber to oneofus.net. You can pledge at anything from the red shirt $2 a month level to the Jedi $25 a month level, and we have a whole post that explains everything you get at every single level right there on the sidebar if you just want to click the little subscriber image. It'll explain all that information. That would be a good thing to do. Please do that. <laughs> it would be a good thing to do. It would be. It would you be. Should, you should read that. It, it would, would be, be a great helpful. thing to do. I don't know why we're talking like this. Anyway, uh, we're also on iTunes. Uh, all of our content, one of us, just search one of us in the podcast section. You can also find us on Stitcher if you're not big on the iTunes. Uh, the show is also on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast, or you can follow the website at One of Us Net, and you can also like the website on Facebook. Or yes, like the website on Facebook. That's what you do on Facebook. <laughs> yes. Facebook.com slash one of us net. It's been a long day. I apologize. <laughs> We're available everywhere. We even, there's a Tumblr, there's an Instagram. You can find all that crap. GeoCities, we have a site there. I think it's us and the Space Gym website are the only two GeoCity site, sites uh, still going strong. However, despite my advanced age, we do not have a MySpace page. Ah, damn. We'll get on that. I'll put an intern on that. No big deal. Hey, guys, everything we talk about on the show, we do put Amazon links at the bottom of the page. Please, please consider using those. Even if you're not going to buy that particular item, if you're going to be making a purchase from Amazon anyway, please use our links to get there first. It costs you nothing, and it really does benefit the site, so we appreciate that. But for now, it's time to reach out to the Intersphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open the most questionable of coffers we call... The Letterbox. You've got mail. The letterbox. Yes, thank you, Torgo. 
And our first question comes from J.D. Rowe, who asks, What movies best encapsulate the spirit of the 90s? You know, this was a question I had to uh, think about, actually, for a while. Because your first instinct to go, oh, my favorite 90s movies. And no, that's not accurate. I mean, like, I, I even, I was Googling this a bit and looking around. A lot of people's first answer was Pulp Fiction. But Pulp Fiction is really kind of an every decade movie. It's not really, it's encapsulates one of the best films of the 90s, but does it really define the 90s as a decade? I mean, not really, considering it's a pastiche of great 70s exploitation movies. Yeah, it's more about that. Somebody else said Donnie Darko, but Donnie Darko takes place in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> it was made in the 2000s. Once again. Skips over the 90s entirely. So, uh, I made a short list of films that I thought were very representative that came out in the 90s that are representative of the 90s. Uh, the first of which, it was Office Space, which certainly mm. was sort of a great perspective on sort of like the the middle management guy, the guy stuck in the, you know, in office life in the 90s and the dissatisfaction that was coming from saying, hey, this isn't how I was told things were going to be. The quiet desperation of like the corporate middleman. Uh, Reality Bites, early 90s film that sort of, to me, was like the beginning of like what ultimately came to be referred to as hipsterism with this sort of like, uh, I don't know, like a, a more, a message, that movie, I hated that movie when it came out. In retrospect, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little more, I guess, relaxed about it, but at the time it made me angry that this girl was choosing this absolute hipster douchebag in the end and that was the movie's moral over this really sweet guy who just wasn't really like all that hip i was like okay reality bites you bite <laughs> but it was predefining uh you could choose that or swingers really as a sort of defining of that that sort of period of time slacker specific to me of course because i moved to austin at that time and that really was what life was like in austin in the 90s for a lot of it uh, of course clerks would be a side by side with that i mean that was really the youth culture at that point it was this sort of cynicism like humorous cynicism and slackerism uh it very much defines what that was like on the other side of that there was the high school world of clueless sure where things were going the opposite direction uh you know the as opposed to the little hipsters like me the little preppy princesses had their clueless world that they lived sure in. and uh the crow are you gonna leave any for me just no, curious I'm, no i'm not, I'm not. <laughs> i have like i give me i need i need another 10 minutes okay you go for it all right you go ahead you go ahead well i've only got one uh oh. so this should be fast uh How the movie that one well here's the thing the movie that has always appeared the most 90s to me ever is So I Married an Axe Murderer. The opening of that movie is in a tiny little coffee house with a giant, like, Friends episode-sized mug of coffee. And it's uh, – Mike Myers gets it and goes, uh, excuse me, I believe I ordered the large hello. And it's just like, oh, my God. It's not only is it the most 90s movie of all time, but it's also kind of poking fun at the 90s at the same time. It's very – Prescient in that regard, it's already starting to pick up on the things that would be made fun of decades later about the things that typified the 90s. This weird, like, pre-Starbucks coffeehouse culture. Uh, the whole, like, the beat poetry thing that he does, which is really odd. Although, I will throw Scream in there as well. Scream uh, is a movie that, again, is wholly beholden to a lot of 80s horror films. But the fashion in that movie, the lingo in that movie, the way the high schoolers party in that movie, all very 90s. So, those are my two choices. Sorry, back to your list. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. So now, now back to the real list. <laughs> it's funny, you're such a caffeine head, and I picture you in the 90s being that guy who's like, 
Did you want the 92 ounce or the large? Just like the shakes, man. I got to get my caffeine. I got to get, 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 get,
is so inherently campy uh, through a lot of it. Not to the level Roger Moore's is, no. mind you, but no, 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 still, no. those films are very, you know, with the possible exception of Dr. No, have a good degree of camp. There's throughout. a wink and a nod to Whereas, it, I'm sure. Uh, Craig is just playing a much more convincing version of the character, I felt, and, and I like him a lot. He's just, he's a schizo, not a schizophrenic, he's basically a psychotic. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah, definitely. With a, with a with a strong control system like Dexter. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about Superman? Who's your favorite? Like Superman's oh, another Christopher Reeve. Yeah, that's Superman's another answer. character that's been played, I think, several times. In Much movies. like Christian Bale, what's the only possible answer for the character that he that multiple people have played? <laughs> oh, sorry, Tom. Not according to Tom Bonner, who, who prefers Michael. I like Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne a lot. I was just never really convinced by his Batman. I think his Bruce Wayne is like this weird little almost. He almost looks like a, a like a guy who made millions off of some tech company yeah. and just never came out of that introverted weird stage. I, and... I didn't care for the way he played Batman either. Yeah. Uh, part of it was like his face kind of bunched up out of the mask. Yeah, like, looked like his fat was trying to get out. <laughs> <laughs> He's a tiny dude, but that mask does nobody any. But favors. that being said, Bale, I never cared for his growly voice. As Batman, I thought other than that, it was a good performance, but I couldn't stand the growly voice. So I like, uh, you know, Kevin Conroy is the right answer on that one. <laughs> Sorry. Kevin Conroy, our favorite Batman. You heard it here first. Well, thanks for your question, guys. We're going to slam the lid shut on the letterbox and push it back under Chris's bed for another week and whatever portal to whatever other dimension there lies within. Uh, and we're going to move on to the reviews. One more time, Amazon links, guys. Please, please use those, even if you're not buying the particular item that we have a link for. If you get to Amazon via that link, anything you buy benefits the site, and we very much appreciate it. Do it. Do it. And we're going to start this week with Lone Survivor, which is not an Akon song, as it turns out. I don't know what that reference is. That's fine. That's for the kids. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Akon? Akon. Is that? that Yeah. He's, He's a convict. He owns a diamond mine, for fuck's sake. Can I go back and live in the 90s again? Sure. Yeah, go back to your list. (laughs) (laughs) We're still on the list of movies. Well, still on, I assume. We presumably will continue to be on the list of movies we've already covered on this site. Highly Suspect Reviews and Lone Survivor was one of the first of the Oscar films we covered. This is directed by Peter Berg, who had... Uh, has had a good career except for his film before this. Oh, Battleship. Battleship. And everyone was like, whoa, what the fuck was that, Peter Berg? Battleship is a giant mess of a movie. It's clearly an instance of movie making by committee because you know the, the studio was like, oh, we need bigger aliens. We need to compete with Transformers and we need this and we need that. And they're like, you know, you're basing this on a board game, right? Okay, sure. Why not? Yeah. Uh, what you said. (laughs) Lone Survivor, on the other hand, is based on a true story, dramatizing on a failed counterinsurgent mission by a group of U.S. Navy SEALs, uh, during which a four-man team was trying to track a Taliban leader, and, and, you know, as the title indicates, failed poorly. Yeah, if I have a complaint with this movie, I really wish they had called it something different. I know that sounds, you know... Maybe a Lone Survivor. Yeah, like, maybe it's a little bit picky, but, like... The real drama of this movie happens after the lone survivor becomes the lone survivor. So why did you have to call it that? Like, I feel like you could have called it anything. And the drama, like, there aren't enough people that know every facet of this particular story, mainly because it wasn't public record for a while because it's a fucking classified mission. So why are you giving away the farm in the title? 
Instead yeah. of calling it just like... Especially considering that those scenes in question, these survival scenes where you're like, who's going to make it? I mean, the, the only mystery is like, which one is the lone survivor? And then you look at the cast list and go, oh. You look at the cover <laughs> of the Blu-ray and it's pretty clear. They could have called this Marky Marksman, and it would have been fine. Marky Marksman. We would have been fine with that. Oh, boy. Well, in addition with Mark Wahlberg, it stars Taylor Kitsch, who's just so trying to become relevant. I did not even know that was him. Even I'm starting to feel sorry for the guy at this point. Go, give him a chance. Uh, Emil Hirsch, who should have been bigger than he is by now. He's a good actor. I think he's really good. He's a good actor. I can't believe he's been struggling for A-list. He looks a little... He looks a little too young to be in this movie, though. He's a great actor, but, like, he's got, like, they all, the whole outfit has got these beards, and his is the only one that looks glued on. Right. Like, he's like, aw, who let the kid into the outfit? And then there's Ben Foster, who to me always looks like Ryan Gosling's not-as-good-looking little brother, but sure. who's still, like, a thousand times better looking than most people you'll ever see. <laughs> <laughs> Testament to how good-looking Ryan Gosling really is. Yeah, I mean, he was the guy. We're like, it's pretty much him and Hemsworth as, like, you know, the contest for who's the best-looking dude in Hollywood right now. Uh, and then Eric Bana, who's another one of those, like, man, what happened? You were supposed to be huge. <laughs> he's And he's good. But, you know, sometimes you just you, you make the wrong choices and this is what happens. But still, he's really good in this. But, so, yeah, this is a solid team of uh, actors who are certainly not all A-list, but um, who all give very strong performances for in what time they are on screen. Yeah. Which is a good deal of the movie as we see them. Having to deal with making a moral decision in the middle of conflict that could very well be an extremely dangerous decision for them, and then having to deal with the fallout of that decision. Mm-hmm. And it's very tense film. It's a very exciting film. Uh, I like this quite a bit. Yeah, it's 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 not bad at all. I you know it's one of those things that the st- I not knowing all of the ins and outs of the story that it's based on, I I find myself. Judging this from a story perspective, which I know is odd because you're kind of confined to the things that actually happened well. in the story. But, like, there there are parts of it that I thought were, were really strong, and there were other parts of it where there were certain allegiances that I was asked to make. And I thought it, it sold it halfway there, but not all the way. But, again, the movie's bound by what happened in the actual story, so it's hard to judge on that level. It's like, well, I wish they had done this in the script. Because that would have been a lie, you know, right. ostensibly. So it's odd, you know, it was odd that this is a film that they were promoting around Oscar time because it feels like one of those films. This is a damn good film that doesn't have a chance at being nominated for anything. No, it's more um, of a it's more of an action type movie than it's a very good action type movie that if it had focused more on the you know the moral decision that's in it and really made the discussions about that and what's happening the crux of the film then yes it would have had a chance of going more in oscar direction but instead that sort of i mean it's it's a turning point in the film but then it's really just let's just get back to the action that's what everybody's here for and right. what great action it is and it's very you know in, in true peter berg form you know battleship notwithstanding um, you know, he, it's very well photographed action and it has the u- great use of scenery and yet he still takes the time to kind of develop the camaraderie b- between the characters so that you actually have some, you care about them a little bit at least before things start going bad, which, uh, you know, in most action films and even in a lot of military films, even, I, I think of something like Tears of the Sun. Yeah. Tears of the Sun is a decent movie, but I can't remember any other character but Bruce Willis in that right, film. Right, right. So, I mean, I don't think the job was done quite as well. Of, of, but, like, Black Hawk Down, I remember every single person in that unit because that's another movie where it's like we're going to take the time to 
really develop the team before we put them in peril. Uh, see, that was my problem with Black Hawk Down is that they had so much black shit on their faces, I couldn't tell who was who. <laughs> the whole movie, I was like, somebody died. I don't know who. Uh, that's that's who, soldierist. It was one of them. I don't know. <laughs> somebody, <laughs> somebody definitely died, and I should feel verklempt about it. <laughs> good, good. I'm going to write this movie a Hallmark card. I'm sorry you lost Phil in the Black. <laughs> I just buy them a happy bar mitzvah card and then just change whatever I need to. <laughs> right. It's cheaper that way. Uh, this blue, The new Blu-ray of Lone Survivor comes with a decent amount of extras, including a behind-the-scenes footage and cast and crew interviews on the film production called Bringing the Story to Light, a uh, four-part piece with profiles on the real-life version of these characters called The Falling Heroes of Operation Red Wings. And then if you get the Blu-ray, there's some exclusive content on here as well, which is a 28-minute uh, documentary about the real Marcus Luttrell and his involvement in the film, uh, which is, of course, the character is a survival. Sorry, spoiler, but he is indeed on the cover. Uh, recreating the firefight, that's a 10-minute feature. shows how they did the big action sequence, which is, like I said, super impressive stuff. Uh, a look at behind-the-scene behind the footage on the actors' training and, and how they tried to really honor the people that they were based on. And then a look at the, the culture and code of honor followed by this group of villagers who become an important part of the film here called the Pashtun Code of Life. There really is this sort of topper scene on this film that brings it morally right back to center. The Code of Life. Code of Life could have been the title of this movie and right. nothing would have been given away. You're right. That would have been perfect. Come on, Hollywood. Code of Life, colon, Mark, Marky Mark survives. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sticking with Marky Marksman. <laughs> All right. I'll let you have that one. Well, that is Code of Life slash Lone Survivor. <laughs> and from there, we're going to move on to McClintock. Yay, it's John Wayne time, Pilgrim. Well, all right, tell us about this Blu-ray, why don't you? You know, I had never seen this one, and I always thought this was a totally different type of movie than what it was. Um, uh, John Wayne made 157 movies, I believe, in his career. He made a few. A few. <laughs> uh, and it's kind of not always easy to keep track of all of which are, are which. And I've only seen but so many of them. I, I mean, think most people have only seen but so many of them. But you them. know what I mean? I, even of the big, really famous ones, I've mm -hmm. only seen, you know, maybe six or seven of the really well-known ones. And this is indeed one of the really well-known ones. Uh, I didn't realize this was a comedy. This is not a straight Western. Oh. By any stretch of the mind. This is not a, like, John Wayne goes and hunts down a bunch of people film. Which is, this is a flat-out Western comedy. Which is funny. When you showed me the Blu-ray cover, it looked totally serious, yep. like a regular Western. And then the actual uh, original poster is John Wayne spanking some girl. And it's yes, very, it's very his cheeky, long, as it were. <laughs> nice. Spanking his longtime uh, co-star, Maureen O'Hara, who's wonderful and was in with him in a, quite a number of films. Um this is actually this was a gigantic hit when it came out for Wayne and for his son uh, uh Patrick Wayne who was the producer one of the producers of this I'm sorry Michael Wayne who was his, one of the producers Patrick actually stars in this um as well as I believe his youngest daughter is in this as well really but it was a huge hit because it was one of those just like, look, we're just going to have fun with this one. And it's loosely, and I mean loosely, based on My Fair – or uh, The Taming of the Shrew, which is based on My Fair – or My Fair Lady. You which was Pygmalion, yeah. which yeah, yeah, I yeah. think before that was 12 Angry Men or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's hard to trace. Uh, Seven Samurai. But John Wayne plays like a, a very successful cattle baron. George Washington G.W. McClintock. <laughs> uh, lives, he's a – 
you know, essentially a single guy living on his ranch. Uh, he's estranged from his wife, Catherine, uh, who played by Maureen O'Hara, who we don't see for a while on the film, who had left him before thinking that he was a, a cheater. Um, but he's generally well liked in the town, despite the fact his friends worry about him because he's been getting drunk a lot lately and he keeps throwing his hat up on the roof. Why are you looking at me when you're saying that? I don't appreciate it. I don't appreciate what you're suggesting. I keep my hat on at all times, Chris. All times. Let me show you these pictures, Brian, from the other night. Oh, God, why? What have I done to myself? I didn't even know you could fit a hat in someone like that. I know, right? That's pretty impressive. <laughs> Who knew the old man had so much hat in him? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, he's he enjoys his life generally until suddenly the ex-wife shows, or not even ex, a estranged wife, shows up, you know, full of city life. You know, oh, constantly going, oh, I never <laughs> just exasperated and totally filled with hate for him. But she has to be there because their daughter is coming back from college to town. And it's really sort of like a goofy John Wayne doing his best to politely put up with her being completely obnoxious <laughs> and outrageous as she slowly is like. You know, you can see that she's still got the country gal on her. Like, when at one point where there's a big fight, she just jumps right there in the middle of it and starts punching people. Nice. You know, one of the greatest scenes in this whole thing is that they actually all did without stuntmen. There's this big fist fight on the top of this hill that's all covered with mud and leads down to a big muddy pond. And pretty much every character, including John Wayne and Ma Maureen O'Hare, slides down that hill and falls in the water. And it's, like, just a fun old-timey apple dumpling gang type of, like, like, action scene. Like a bunch of punch-drunk otters just sliding down the hill. Pretty much. Uh, this is just, it's it's a lot of fun. It doesn't have any, it's very shallow. There's not a lot of meaning. And there's things that, by today's context, are a little offensive. Like, there's a whole group of Indians in town that at one point uh, McClintock had fought in the distant past, but since had mended ways with and is now friends and trying to help them. Uh, versus the government, who are being kind of dicks. And what? The American government being dicks to the Native Americans? Yeah, there's a, there's a weird undercurrent of like, no, no, uh, John Wayne is the guy who now understands that the government's treating these people badly, which I don't think reflects real life, but um, <laughs> the one head Indian guy, all he says is, is that whiskey? Where's the party? Give me the whiskey! That's all he says. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like if Brian were a Native American. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, yeah, so a little offensive. But you know what? That's only in our context of today's time. She finds the bottle. Uh, overall, this is a lot of fun. Just, just like I said, it's a piece of fluff. It's just a really good piece of fluff. And it's always been highly regarded as a really good John Wayne film. They've put it together beautifully on this uh, a new Blu-ray release. I mean, it just looks, looks and sounds gorgeous. Um, and there's a decent amount of special features. There's audio commentary from Leonard Malton, uh, Maureen O'Hara, who is still alive, <laughs> Stephanie Powers and Michael P Pate, who are all on it. The producer, uh, Michael Wayne, uh, director, uh, and the director, Andrew McLaughlin. Uh, I mean, that's a huge amount of people in a commentary. There's a separate introduction by Leonard Malton. There's a three-part feature on the making of it, uh, one part of which is focuses entirely on Michael Wayne, who I didn't know anything about, but apparently became a very powerful, well-known and well-loved producer under the aegis of his dad, uh, producing and leading his dad towards some of his biggest films. Uh, there's a weird short about the history of the corset, because <laughs> there's a lot of chicks running around in corsets in here, and then a two-minute look at like doing movie fistfights. 
I'm sorry, I was just taken aback by the fact that the director's still kicking. I mean, he's almost 100 years old. Well, it, some of these are older uh, commentaries I oh, think okay. that they added on to there. So. No, he is, but I'm looking up at, on his is IMDb he still page. He's still kicking. Good Lord. He's 94 years old. Oh, my God. It's crazy, right? 94. Yeah. So he in the commentary every once in a while goes, Where's my juice? <laughs> <laughs> Where's the whiskey? I want to party. Always want to party. Nurse! (laughs) (laughs) McClint who? But yeah, I I do actually really recommend this. This is a super lot of fun. Nice. Well, from McClintock, we're going to move on to Three Days to Kill. Because we have a few minutes to kill talking about it, apparently. Okay, set your clock now, because I don't want to go any longer on this than I have to. Three minutes to kill, go. You know... You know... I know Andy Rooney over here. McGee, the director, has done a lot of television that I really like, actually. He's in, wasn't the guy who founded Chuck and Supernatural. I've never seen the OC, but people seem to like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not crazy about his film work, uh, generally speak, outside of um, uh, Charlie, the first Charlie's Angels movie, which even that is sort of like, oh, eh, this yeah. wasn't totally awful. Yeah. But, you know, I can't say I've liked anything else that he's made. And thankfully, I don't have to have a codicil on this anymore because Three Days to Kill doesn't change anything. No, it does not. I mean, it's very different from your normal Big G film. It's not quite as exaggerated and hyper-stylized. In fact, mm-hmm. if anything, it pulls back a little too much in the story with Kevin Costner as a old CIA spy who's discovered that he doesn't have a lot longer to live thanks to some illness that's going on with him. He's, he's sick. That's generally what is established within the movie is that he is not feeling well, and uh, very shortly he will pass. But into his life comes this mysterious... Well, And he used to be uh, a heavy hitter... Uh, for the American government, and by that I mean he literally was a uh, hitman. And so into his life comes this woman uh, who I believe works for the CIA, but it's not entirely yeah, clear. Entirely clear. I mean, presumably some kind of black ops related organization, yeah. but it's Amber Heard, so who cares? Yeah, who gives a shit? Who, like, Amber is, Heard in various wigs and sexy things. Yeah, she's like the one person in this whole film who thinks she's in every other McJ film. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, and, and the thing is, so she shows up and is like, you know, we need you to take care of this person. We actually have like, I think it's like a short list of people they want him to knock off. And here's this cure that we have. This experimental medicine that will make you better, which we will give you if you do this. So that's where we pick up. And, and in terms of you know what you were saying about this feeling like a very different McGee film, I think that's because it was written by Luc Besson. Uh-huh. And this feels like, what this felt like to me was somebody trying to make the professional and not quite understanding striking the right balance between Hitman action motifs and the emotional weight of the of the like paternal relationship. Yeah. Cause the whole connection with him trying to reconnect with his estranged daughter played by Haley Steinfeld, who people might remember from uh, true grit remake. Um, it never really gels with this film at all. Right, Exactly. And that's the biggest problem. And I feel like, again, this is, I, I've been saying this. I feel like Luke Besson is at a point where he just, he just needs to stop because he's, yeah. I think he's run his course with everything he wants to do creatively. And literally this feels like him recycling his own stuff. It does. And at that point that it feels like multiplicity recycled, you know, it's yeah. like, this is the eighth clone of Michael Keaton that we're looking at. At yeah, this exactly. Point, and it's kind of stupid. Hey, Steve. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not good. And, I, and that's my biggest problem with the movie is that Kevin Costner's actually not bad in it. Despite him adopting a Batman gravelly voice for no reason. Yeah. Uh, he's actually not bad in it. It's just that 
the action stuff does not does not fit in well with this very ham fisted and shoehorned emotional uh you know emotional context of of him trying to reconnect with his daughter. There are so many moments that don't really feel like what they're trying to sell is they're trying to sell the superhero dad, and what they end up selling is a very weak and and kind of mishmashy daughter that isn't really that interesting. I actually found Costner's performance a little dull here. I thought that he was trying too hard to play a very serious character in a film that's not taking itself very seriously, and it shows. I mean, even, he's better in the scenes where he's trying to relate to his family, to to Haley Steinfeld and Connie Nielsen, who plays his ex-wife. He's much better in those scenes, which are more down-to-earth than he is in any of the spy stuff, which is 75% of this, where he just looks kind of bored to me. Well, but oddly enough, the spy stuff is not taking itself too seriously, and then the the relationship stuff between him and his daughter is taking itself way too seriously. Yeah, yeah. It never strikes the right tone. No, and those those things never they never really cross together until an end scene where even then we're what, supposedly what is that scene? they all are supposed to come up to a head, and then they never really do. They're kind of at the same place at the same time, but it's never you never really feel like they've there's any way they connect together except in the most back-assed, like, convenient script-writing sort of way. I, I find that ending one of the most insulting things I've seen in recent years. It's literally just a, and that's how it ends. Fuck you. Like, you don't like it? Write your own movie. Yeah, this is really pretty crappy, which is a shame because there are elements here that are like that feel like this was the first draft of a movie that could have been a pretty good movie. It this- feels like the kind of movie that they would have made in the 70s. Yeah. Like, a, like a, a, a movie about a hitman who's dying and, like, in his last... Like, think about it if it was if it was pitched that way, where it's like, no, no, he's going to die. He's got three days to live, and the only thing that's keeping him going so that he can try and make amends with his daughter before he eventually kicks the bucket is by continuing to do these jobs. You put Charles Bronson in this movie in the 70s, it's a great fucking movie. But, like, it's so, I don't know, it's so watered down by the time it gets here because it's basically just a retread of The Professional that it doesn't work anymore. But the story itself, if the story is tweaked just a little bit, there is something really cool there. Yeah, and there's little elements of it that I liked, like uh, the way that he doesn't really want to be a killer anymore, despite the fact that's all he's ever really done. And he keeps finding himself in positions where he is kind of bonding with people that he, in a year beforehand, would have killed without a second thought over family matters and things that connect with his own trying to reconnect with his family that should have worked. They really should have. It should have been part of the bigger feel of the whole thing, but they don't. They feel like little comedy sketches in the middle of an otherwise banal film. Yeah. Banal. Three days to banal. Um, Yeah, this Blu-ray comes with about a 10-minute EPK, very generic, making of Three Days to Kill. There's a not-quite-five-minute... Uh, profile on McGee called McGee's Method, which is probably about as many minutes as it took him to come up with one. I'm sorry, McGee's Method, the most average, the most cliche director of all time, yeah. has a method? <laughs> Not of all time. You're thinking Brett Ratner. Uh, I don't know, man. McGee, Brett Ratner, it's like six of one, half a dozen of the other for me. Uh, Covert Operation, which is a piece with a former CIA agent talking about his work, which you think would be like interesting and informed to this film, but probably not. And that's only about five minutes. So there's not a lot of extras here because they probably knew, look, this film didn't last long in the theaters. Nobody gives a shit about this movie. And in about three months, no one will remember three days to kill. Nope. That is the truth fact. Moving on from three days to kill. We're going to talk about JLA adventures trapped in time. Really? I don't know. I I like that. You should sing all the titles. (laughs) 
There are people listening who would argue that. <laughs> um, this is a new direct-to-video animated film featuring the Justice League and a few members of the uh, League of uh, what is it, the Legion of Superheroes in the future. It's all right. So we all know that you know DC regularly puts out their big animated movies once every three months or so or two months or so that are like they get bigger names for them, expensive animated stuff. And they lately they've been, you know, back and forth. It's like every other yeah. one is good and the other one is kind of crappy. This is not in that series. Um, this is more of a – this feels like a – like the part of a television series. This feels like something that like – uh, that would have come out around the time they were doing Justice League Unlimited, in both in terms of the the quality of the voice actors here, uh, you know, which are, which is mixed. I mean, you get Dietrich Bader as Batman, who I think is acceptable Batman, but certainly nowhere near my first choice. It's uh, a weird uh, choice for Batman. Peter Jessup as Superman. Uh, you know, it's just there's not a lot of really familiar people here, except for I think Kevin Michael Richardson, who pretty much always does Black Man- Manta and Solomon Grundy, but. The storyline and just the sense of fun here is much bigger than we've gotten for a while on some of these. Mm-hmm. It's goofier. It's not taking itself that serious. I mean, the idea is that, like, when it starts, Lex Luthor and the Legion of Dune are using uh, Dune? Legion, Legion of, Dune. of Dune. We love Frank Herbert. Bring me the spice. <laughs> uh, they're trying to use cryogenic ray shooting satellites. Uh, to expand the Earth's polar ice caps in the Arctic Ocean, <laughs> causing a drop in sea levels and creating new islands out of it they intend to rule. I'm sorry, I'm still thinking about a mashup between, like, superheroes and Dune, like the Incredible yeah. Harkonnen. Right? <laughs> you wouldn't like me when I don't have my spice. <laughs> you wouldn't like me when I don't have my clothes. Oh. <laughs> just boils and shit. Those pants Is better stay on. insinuated that he had sex with Sting? I'm just saying. <laughs> It was like, that was enough to turn it off right there. I will kill him. Um, but anyway, so they defeat uh, Lex Luthor in the beginning. And uh, basically, Captain Cold, who's just doesn't isn't good at what he does, oh, overloads Cold. the satellite. And it ends, Lex, ends with Lex Luthor getting encapsulated somewhere in the ice, presumed lost forever. In fact, it switches to the 31st century right after that, where two... Teenage superheroes who want to be part of the Legion of Superheroes, Dawnstar, and get this, Karate Kid. Oh, for fuck's sake, No, guys. Who is the master of all martial arts. And you're like, so why would you call yourself Karate Kid? I mean, yeah. even forgetting the fact that maybe they've forgotten about the name of the movie by the 31st century. Yeah. Like, why would you call yourself Karate Kid when you're also good at Taekwondo yeah. and everything else? You would be Martial Man or Yeah, or like, like that. Judo Kid or Taekwondo well, Dude, you know, that, something else. Yeah, but nothing that was specific to a style that doesn't really make a lot of sense is yeah. my point. Especially if you're going to choose the one that already has a well-established brand behind it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but they're visiting a museum, looking at the history of the Justice League and they there's the museum has found Luther and it's just this giant ice iceberg in the museum with Luther in the middle of it and they're like look it's Luther don't touch it uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Karate Kid is like a little punk so he punches the thing for some reason and Luther is free to impress the Cobra Kai for reasons that are never explained Luther is just fine because you're frozen in ice for a thousand years and you come out and you're like Brush the dust off. Have you not seen that documentary in Sino Man? <laughs> it is awe inspiring. Yeah, or or Iceman with Timothy Hutton. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Luther gets out, grabs a another conveniently placed artifact in the museum, the Time Twister or uh, Time Trapper, uh, which is connected to a, a supervillain called the Time Trapper. Goes back in time uh, to 
first fight, fight the Justice League and then go even further back in time and stop Superman from ever being found by uh, uh, the Kents. Okay. So as to alter the whole history. And ultimately, it ends up with Don Star and Karate Kid trying to fix the whole situation without the help of the Justice League. Oh, that sounds like fun. Um, Actually, it is kind of fun if you're willing to get over the fact that it's completely ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, like I said, this is more like older sk- school stuff. They're not taking it as seriously. I actually had a lot more fun with this than I, I, ha- I did with a lot of the more recent, bigger animated features. It's not like great stuff but if you're looking for something that feels more like like a jla tv show this is good i would i would like it if this had been the launch of a new series i would Mm -hmm. be like wow i want to keep watching this series this is just goofy fun so like i said not something that's gonna like you know change history (laughs) (laughs) despite its best efforts uh but trapped in time it's it's not bad worth a look if you're a fan all right yeah fair enough yeah if you're a Justice League fan of that series, you should check this out. Well, continuing on this time travel kick, uh, Chris, take me away, I don't mind, as long as you tell us all about back in crime. Did you really corrupt my song that way? Yes. Yes, it did. I'm going to go watch <laughs> Back to the Future when this is over. But for the time being, Back in Crime is the movie. Back in Crime is a 2013 French film uh competed in the competition of the 35th annual moscow international film festival apparently i'd never heard of this until it was coming out on dvd but it stars uh jean hughes anglade who plays richard kemp who's a french police captain who's investigating the murder of of uh this woman who's found dead near a river and a witness to this uh helene played by melanie thierry i'm probably saying that wrong uh is sort of connecting with him over this. There's something between the two of them. It seems like maybe it's evolving towards more, but he's being a little standoffish because, like, you're technically a witness to a murder scene. So until that's all wrapped up, we can't take this any further. But one night while he's sitting on the bridge, just sort of staring down and thinking about it, uh, something hits him on the back of the head. He falls into the water and wakes up in the series Life on Mars. <laughs> No, not exactly. It sounds like what? Have you ever seen Life on Mars? <laughs> I haven't. Oh, Life on Mars, the same idea. Police captain investigating a big case, son finds him, gets in an accident, finds himself woke on a, wakes up back in the seventies and basically joins the police force there. Huh. And is aware of the things that happen in the future and is trying to figure out how he got there, how he can get back. Sort of like that, except he doesn't join the police force. He instead is trying to prevent the serial killer who originally started, first started committing crimes in the 70s, then stopped for a long time, and then had started again in modern day, trying to stop him from ever committing those crimes in the first place and catch him before it can get to that later point. And of course, you know, when you start manipulating time, things get weird and yeah. in ways you don't expect paradoxical even and there's some really good performances here uh there's a strong amount of chemistry between the two leads the biggest problem with this movie is that time travel movie fanatics are going to get really irritated by a couple key things here one clearly somebody intentionally knocked him on the head and sent him into the river, which sent him back through time. There's some weird connection with a boat with a flashing light on it that drives by. It's never, but none of this is ever clarified at all. Like no, Uh in no way is any of this approached ever again for the entire (laughs) rest of this film. Don't worry about it. It never comes up. It's like, you know what? Let's just, all we're interested in is getting to the point where this dude's back in time. He's trying to stop a serial killer. Don't worry so much about the mystery of how he got there. You know what? 
I think that that's a pretty salient point that you've got to deal with at some point. I mean, right. if it had been if they had set it up a way where it was just a totally random accident how he got back in time, I would have gone okay. But it's not, and it even seems connected to the killer himself because when he's on the bridge, it's because he stops because he's seen this van that may or may not be connected to the killer. Uh, it, it that just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but if you can get past that, it actually is a pretty fun movie for the rest of the way. Like I said, good performances, a couple moments that'll make you go, "Wait, does that how that would happen?" But you know, as he's trying to dodge around his younger self, and he himself becomes the main sub uh, suspect in the hunt for the killer. Pretty good stuff. If you like time travel movies and you can get past that one like obvious glaring flaw, Back in Crime is really worth a look. Fair enough. Well, moving on from Back in Crime to, man, uh, the movie I probably hated the most this week. Uh Uh-oh, I'm curious. Vampire Academy. Oh, here it comes. Oh, good God. Okay, I want to start by saying this. I like Mark Waters. Mark Waters is the guy that directed Mean Girls. And Mean Girls is one of those movies that if you just look at the marketing, you just look at it on the surface, you probably wouldn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. But it turns out it's a lot smarter and it's a lot funnier than it really has any any, any right to be. It was written by Tina Fey. So. It was written by Tina Fey. Mark Waters does a great job with it. Tina Fey, obviously, her script is clearly what made that movie what it was because this film, I feel like, tries to accomplish a similar, like, okay, look. From the outside, it looks like just another shitty teen vampire movie where we're just trying to cash in on Twilight. But when you watch it, what it actually is, is a shitty teen vampire movie that's trying to cash in on Twilight. So, you know, you... Oh, yeah, it doesn't really do anything different or interesting. I would argue with you that it's not really trying to cash in on Twilight. It's trying totally to cash in on Harry Potter, though. Oh, absolutely. We do it with hot teenage girls. No, I will give you that. I mean, in honest, outside of the fact that there are vampires here, it has almost nothing in common with Twilight. It steals entire, entire shots from Twilight. Like, all of these, like... Shots of the what look like the American Northwest over the tops of trees. I mean, it's literally cribbing cinematography from Twilight immediately after making a reference to Twilight. Like, well, it's not like we'd sparkle or anything. And it's like, you can't rip on Twilight and then steal from them at the same time. I don't know if I agree with you. I felt like that moment was them saying, hey, this is why we're not like Twilight, only to go and rip off something else even bigger and better than Twilight. Which I suppose if you're going to steal, steal from something that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Try stealing from something that's good, yes. Um, The biggest problem I have with this film is nothing to do with where it's it's stealing its stuff blatantly from. It has to do with the fact that there's just absolutely no sense of downtime here. It feels like like everything in this is so crunched together. I mean, this can't have been a giant like goblet of fire-sized book it was based on, can it? But it feels like it the way there's so much exposition. Oh my god. This film. There's exposition on top of exposition. My favorite scene is the beginning of the movie where the one girl says to the other, it's been a year since the crash. And then pause. And then two years since we left the academy. And it's like, okay, what? Okay, first of all, you didn't need to say the first thing because she was there. She would already know that. But then just to drop the other one on there, despite the fact that you weren't even talking about it, you've got to be kidding me with this script. <laughs> uh, the idea is that there are three types of vampires. There's dompiers, which are basically half human, half vampires, and they serve as sort of like the the bodyguards, you know, if you will, to the main vampires. The Maroi, who are sort of the main vampires, but they're peaceful and they're mortal, and they've also got magic powers they can use. And then the bad guys, which are the uh, Strigoi. Strigoi, which are more like the traditional vampires. They're much more physically powerful, but but they're also uncontrollable and will 
will just kill like at anybody who's got blood. That's yeah, like them. real vampires. Yeah, including other vampires. Um, and of course, this the idea here is that two of them, uh, Rose Hathaway plays the Dompier and is basically the the lead character of the story and her best friend Lisa Dragomir who is uh, going to end up being heir to the throne of the Maroi what have you they've heir es- to House Slytherin they've escaped from the academy for reasons that are not made clear until later in the exposition when the movie <laughs> decides to oh yeah later in the movie when the exposition same difference anyway seriously <laughs> it's fucking moving um, and they end up getting brought back to school by fo- force by the cute older vampire uh a dumpier guy, the love interest, shall we say. Um, and from there on, it really is kind of a Harry Potter movie in the way that it's like, okay, let's go to classes. Uh-oh, there's an undercurrent evil over under here. We don't necessarily, there's problems with other students who think we're nerds. It's like, really? You're yeah. nerds? You're but like totally fucking gorgeous. Here's how Harry Potter works and this movie doesn't. Harry Potter, it does two things. One, its main character is a character who was completely ignorant of the magical world until the first movie. So we, he is the sounding board for the audience, and it feels much more organic for characters to explain things to him because he doesn't have that information, and therefore we get that information. We get everything explained to us that way, totally organically. Not only that, but not everything is explained to Harry, and he has, get this, discovery throughout the course (laughs) of that franchise. Whereas in this movie, the main character is somebody who has lived in that world her whole life, and yet is still being explained to what the world is. And explaining to us via voiceover and exposition what's going on. I think you're wrong only in the sense that there's a wealth of reasons besides that (laughs) Harry Potter is better than Vampire (laughs) Academy. (laughs) Yes, it's not the sole reason. definitely one reason. You're not wrong. But structurally, that's why we get exposition in Harry Potter and it doesn't feel like an exposition machine and that's all this movie is, is an exposition machine. You know, the funny thing about this, though, is and I know this is partially my fault for being so into the Harry Potter world and gen- and outside of Twilight and that kind of thing, generally like vampire movies. I enjoyed this in a totally this is a bad movie that's fun to watch type of level. The same way I did the Mortal Instruments. I was like, this is terrible. And I'm really actually kind of having fun watching it. I really wish I could agree, man, because that would have at least made the the experience of sitting through this worthwhile. There are just moments in here that did genuinely work for me. I thought there were jokes that were genuinely funny in here. Um, I always like to see Gabriel Byrne and stuff, even though the poor guy who should be at the top of his game is in nothing but, you know, B to Z grade films at this point in his career. Uh, Olga Kirilenko, who once again should have a much better role than she she's in for this, has one great line. She's the headmistress of the school. One of the students knocks her out with a drug and as she's passing out. She's like, I could have been a model. I met this guy in Milan. He was like, you're beautiful. And then just fades out. <laughs> it's like, okay, that was kind of funny. There's moments in here that genuinely work and there's visions of like why this book series is so incredibly popular, which they are, but it's such a poorly put together film with no conceit for the structure of filmmaking that's kind of embarrassing <laughs> and kind of yeah and that's partially like i said I, the thing about a bad movie that's still fun to watch is it can't be you can't have a movie where nothing is happening for long stretches of time if it's a bad movie it has to be one things constantly happen and if nothing else about vampire academy you can say that this doesn't really have much downtime yeah because it doesn't want you to stop and think about anything for two seconds it's like no no look over here look Look over here here. look Look at this look at the shiny thing (laughs) yeah so take it as you will i personally am on the side that i feel like you can enjoy this film on on that sort of level uh 
even sort of on a mean girls level, although by on no means anywhere near as quality as that film is. I no. mean, some of the high school competition with girls is cute, but doesn't really sell anywhere near as the same. Uh, there's an alternate opening on the disc that isn't that different. Deleted, uh, deleted scenes, uh, a conversation with the author. All of this adds up to like not even 10 minutes. Yeah. It's like, is the alternate opening just a video of somebody putting in mean girls instead of this? <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. There's your alternate opening. <laughs> There's your, your favorable alternative. Yeah. Oh, Vampire Academy, I have graduated beyond you. So is this your pick of the week? No, no. <laughs> Not unless that means something different now. <laughs> your pick to be staked through the... Can you stake a Blu-ray through the heart? Because I'll find a way. Well, it doesn't have a heart. You can stake, stake it through the spindle or something. Yeah, through the, the hole in the middle. Hole. Yeah. Okay. Well, from a uh, terrible vampire movie to a not-so-terrible vampire movie, Nosferatu the Vampire. Now, it should be stated, this is not the original Max Shrek Nosferatu yeah. This, uh, which was a Murnau film. This is the uh, 1979 remake by uh, Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog, starring Klaus Kinski, who has always looked, in my opinion, like some sort of sickly vampire. So it's a natural casting. The, the, the born, the guy was born to play Nosferatu. Totally, I mean, not even any other vampire. The ugly one. <laughs> yeah, I'm not convinced that he's wearing any makeup yeah. in this movie. Yeah, maybe the fake ears, but other than that. <laughs> You know, and Herzog, who of course has become much more of a familiar name to Americans in the last decade, has sort of like infiltrated our culture in a uh, almost sort of self-parodying way, but in some sometimes really serious. He yeah. certainly made some films that crossed over to here successfully. Uh, he always said he thought the greatest film that ever came out of Germany was the original Nosferatu, which was hampered to some level by the fact they had to change a bunch of stuff because when they were first starting production on it, Bram Stoker, who was still alive, said, ah, no, you can't do that. That's a ripoff of my book. And so they had to change all the names. For instance, he's called Count Orlock mm -hmm. in the original, not Count Dracula. Mm -hmm. Uh, they had to change story elements. This is indeed a remake of that, except changing the names back. Right, all those elements from the original uh, uh, Bram Stoker novel are back in the in the context in the framework of Nosferatu. Yeah, at, at the very least, the name changes, if nothing else. Although oddly, there's no Mina. It's just Lucy is the Mina character, and there's no Lucy character. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, which I thought was a very odd decision to make, but. You know, the, the strength here is really just the gorgeous gothicness of the whole thing. I mean, he's definitely trying to channel why the original and why, uh, you know, the Bela Lugosi Dracula were so effective. I mean, it's about atmospherics 100%. Yeah, and it's interesting to me the aesthetic choices that he makes. It's almost as if he's intentionally uh, draining all of the camp out of a hammer film. Yeah. Because it has the look of a Hammer film, the texture, but there's nothing campy about it whatsoever. It's it's far more of a nod toward the the German expressionist Nosferatu oh, by yeah. Murnau. I mean, than it is anything that in 1979 would have been in, in vampire cinema would have been Hammer would have still been the standard. Even even you know to films like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and that whole sequence of this just feel like a sort of like waking nightmare type of thing. You sure, know? like not surreal, mind you, in the same way that like Caligari is. But like I mean, there's a sequence where this girl is wandering out in the middle of the square, and all these people are silently bringing coffin after coffin after coffin towards the church. I mean, it's to the point where it's just, you realize there's no way this could be happening in this town without people leaving en masse, you know? Yeah. It's like, okay, that this is not a real scenario. This feels like a nightmare. And, and to the point where it really draws you in. I actually really enjoyed this. It's dated, certainly, but it 
is very effective in setting up its tone. Uh, Bruno Gans plays Jonathan Harker uh, in a very strange, in the second half of this, interpretation of that character, that's for sure. Like, yeah. boy, did they find something different to do with his story arc sure. Um Klaus Kinski is, of course, the big appeal, who is really fucking creepy as shit as, as uh, Count Dracula here, the Nosferatu version of Count Dracula. I think if this, you know, I was watching this, I was like, you know what the big problem with me in, like, adapting this to, like, now and enjoying this now is, is that it needs more score. Oh, absolutely. Is the biggest problem with it. It's, most of it is not terribly scored, and... I'm like their whole sequence is I'm like this would be really creepy as fuck and I would be fuck I'd be fucking scared by this if it had something like that great score for uh Scorsese's Bram Stoker's Dracula like that had a, the best Coppola's. thing about that whole or Coppola's yeah. the best thing about that film was the score uh, yeah. I don't know how you say his name Wojciech Kiliar oh yeah like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just a sig- significant uh, movie score and that sounds that feels like a very deliberate choice by Herzog like yeah. I can imagine him saying going I'm not, I'm not going to let the audience know ahead of time Vincent are supposed to feel something that but, you have to make that decision and I agree with you yeah. but to me I could I could totally see Herzog going not going to lead the audience and tell them when they have to be afraid especially in 1979 when people were really experimenting with stuff like this but now it just feels spare sure yeah. no I, I would agree with that 100% but overall I really like Kensky's interpretation of the character I really like the fact that they have worked sort of retconned elements of the original Stoker novel back into the framework of Nosferatu. Uh, I think the cinematography is really interesting. Uh, it's not grandiose. It's not, I mean, in fact, I mean, that's, Herzog is, is one of those directors that's done some really interesting things with, with minimalism at times. Mm. And I feel like a lot of the beautiful cinematography here isn't about grandeur and scope. It's about these little moments and, and creating like a really dark, ominous, tone within these smaller uh vignettes so i i i enjoyed it but i i can't disagree that it would have been better with a with a score yeah it's still a unique piece of cinema despite being a remake um there's some questionable stuff that happened in the past especially with, i mean there's like thousands and thousands of rats in this movie so if you don't like rats this that alone is gonna fucking freak you out i mean i don't really care that much one way or the other about rats and it started to get to me but apparently <laughs> there was some pretty well recorded examples of animal abuse they were doing pretty horrible shit to these rats to get them to do them what they wanted so that's kind of bad uh forgetting putting that aside though this actually in- includes both the german version and the english version they filmed them side by side and just reshot all the scenes in english after they shot them in german figuring it would appeal better than a subtitle version i'm sure they were right uh there's a vintage featurette making of nosferatu with lots of behind the scenes footage there's an english commentary and a german commentary with Werner herzog which if you watch the german version they subtitle the commentary which is really <laughs> putting some thought into yeah it. definitely because <laughs> Because, and I think that's because they know Herzog is such a weird dude, yeah. but so compelling in his own bizarre way. Like, I mean, that's the re- he's a he plays a villain in Jack Reacher for God's sake. This this heralded and very uh, eccentric German filmmaker is the villain in an action movie from a couple of years ago. Yeah, just weird. Like, so weird. You're like, wait, is that Werner Herzog? It's totally Werner Herzog. <laughs> weird. And I still love the thing online of it's not really Werner Herzog, but somebody doing an impression of Werner Herzog reading Curious George cracks me up so hard. <laughs> yeah. It's like he finds the yellow hat and he goes, a cultural artifact of unimaginable significance. <laughs> so fucking funny. Love it. Anyway, that was Nosferatu. And we're going to move on from there to the First World War, which don't get me wrong. I like the sequel a lot. 
but I think this one's my favorite. Yeah, when you know when you, the original is just it's a bigger surprise, you know, everybody mm. coming together like that, going, "Are we really going to do this?" I think I like World War One better because I'm just such a fan of mustard. <laughs> I, it's my favorite condiment, and they use mustard gas a lot more in, in World War One. So yeah, I don't know. I like the part at the end of World War Two though, where Luke is on the ship and he's lost his hand, and you know Darth Vader. You just like World War Two better because you like explosions. But there's a lot of explosions. There's a lot. The there's a lot of big explosions at the end. You know, the thing about the First World War that makes it really stand out for one, a lot more uh, actual soldiers died during World War One. It yeah. was a mess. Of yes, a it war. was. And part of that was that. All that war technology hadn't really been used for like 40 years. It was all new and nobody had really actively used it at that point. So all these like submarines and, and, uh, uh, gunships and cannons, like, you know, like, like, uh, anti-aircraft technology, machine guns, nobody really used them. So they're like, ah, hell, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> they were blowing each other themselves up through friendly a lot of, fire. A lot of friendly fire. Um, and this is a 10 part. 2003 Channel 4 TV series based on the book of the same name by an Oxford professor named Hugh Strachan. Um, it was narrated and produced by Jonathan Lewis. Uh, and this is not the first release of this on DVD, strangely. I'm not entirely clear why this is coming out now as a DVD. Uh, again, it came out a few years ago with a book that came with it. And maybe this was just, okay, this one doesn't have the book that comes with, booklet that comes with it. I mean, not the whole book. I mean, like a 33 page booklet with the original. This one doesn't have a booklet. So maybe they're like, let's put out a cheaper to produce one. I don't huh. know. Either way, this is actually a, uh, you know, considered to be pretty much the greatest documentary ab about World War One ever made. And it's funny because, you know, there's a wealth of World War Two documentaries. They're everywhere. There's like probably a thousand World War Two yeah. multi-part documentary series. And I think if you took all of the documentaries about World War Two and played them uh, back to back, yeah. you would, they would last as long as World War Two did, or longer, or longer. Yeah. If Ken Burns is involved, yeah. yes. And you throw yeah. a Band of Brothers on top of that, and the Pacific, then forget about forget it, about you it. Know? Um, this is the only one I've ever actually watched that was a whole series about World War One, and it is fascinating. It's wildly specific. I mean, if you really want to know what happened, everybody knows about the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, but the reasonings why. And how that directly led into all these countries getting involved is such a sort of ham-handed series of, like, oops <laughs> situations. <laughs> I mean, everybody getting involved in the war was kind of like, are we sure this is really a good idea? It's like, yeah, we don't want to look bad in front of everybody else. Well, okay. <laughs> you know, at one point, the, the the Germans who were getting involved on the side of Austria-Hungary, who had basically started this war, war against Serbia... Uh, we're like, I don't think we can win this. <laughs> this doesn't look good, guys. The Russians were openly saying, why are we, what are we fighting? What started? I'm not sure what's even happening. <laughs> I guess send a bunch of guys that way. They're in the, they're in the fourth season of Game of Thrones going, wait, who, who's, who's ally again? Why are we pissed off at them? I've forgotten. Can we do a refresher last week on maybe? So it's actually a very interesting series. And like I said, this is, it's probably a little more, uh, intensely scholarly than some people might be used to for this type of documentary series. But I found it absolutely fascinating, really enjoyed this. And this is one of those things that's like, if you're somebody, you know, who cares about history, <laughs> as you should. As you should. Uh, uh, this is one of the things that would be a great addition to anybody's shelf to have there. It's like, hey, I was thinking about writing something that takes place partially during World War One. Let's say you're a writer like likes to, who might want to involve time travel or historical fiction. This is essential to put on your shelf to go, you know what, I'm going to spend a weekend watching this and now I have a much better idea of what the world was like at that period of time.
Totally. Yep. But would you say it's a documentary to end all documentaries? Ah, the great documentary. The great documentary. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of things that aren't great, um, we're going to talk about Pompeii. Yeah. Another movie whose title kind of gives away the farm, much as Lone Survivor, because when you hear the movie's called Pompeii, you know it don't have a happy ending. You know, we saw this in the theater shortly after we saw The Legend of Hercules, and The Legend of Hercules, we actually, like, despite being terrible, we actually enjoyed again to some level, like, going, this is so bad, I'm actually kind of having fun with it. Pompeii is one of those films that's just kind of bad and dull. I was like, you know... I want to have fun with this, but I'm really having trouble. If nothing else, it made me feel a little bit better knowing that it, it appears that everyone in Pompeii died in their sleep. Because yeah. no one's really giving a lively performance at <laughs> no. all. Uh, this is obviously historical fiction, to put yeah. it lightly. But, uh, More like historical fiction. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland is the, basically the bad guy here who's a, a oh my God. dickhead Roman leader. So um, He's uh, so bad. There's a book. connection to him and the main character played by Kit Harrington here that you really there's no reason to focus on because it's stupid. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I Harrington, look at Kit Harrington's choices so far as a film actor, and I just go, "You know nothing, Jon Snow." <laughs> um, he uh, is as a full grown man. He's known as Kit Harrington's known as Milo. He's a gladiator. Uh, People really, really dig him a lot. He's apparently a badass in the gladiator pit, so he gets moved to the much bigger place in Pompeii uh, where he can fight against people who are A-level fighters as opposed to the, the schmucks he's regularly bringing down. Uh, he ends up forming sort of a friendship relationship with some of them, ex uh, especially a sort of a rivalry friendship with Atticus, played by Atawele Akinoe. Uh, Mr. Echo. Yes, Mr. Echo. Thank you, because I can never quite get the last name. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but of course you see early on Kit Harrington has a meet cute sequence with a, um, you know, beautiful Roman, you know, rich lady played by Emily Browning, uh, who you're like, okay, well, we can kind of see where this is going. Look, let me just, we all know what happens at Pompeii, right? Volcano blows up, everybody dies. What? Spoiler. Rich guy who wants to have the hand of the beautiful princess girl who has eyes for the poor dude, but we all know they're all going to die. Wait. This is starting to sound familiar. <laughs> Giant, historical, famous disaster. Yeah. Love story in the middle of it that's about a disparate relationship between rich people and poor people. It sounds familiar. It sounds reminiscent mm. of a titanically successful film I from several years what ago. what was it? I can't remember. Gladiator. Uh, you know, that's, <laughs> uh, whatever. It, we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg on this one. Yeah, I can't too bad. quite remember. But either way, the film we were thinking of, it, no matter how you might think about it, is a lot better than Pompeii. Yeah. And, and again, like, don't get me wrong. The whole central plot of Snow versus the Volcano is great and whatever. I but see what you did there. You see what like I did that. there? Yeah. But what this movie spends most of its time doing is being gladiator. Like, it literally just steals entire, like, structural, like, you're in this small arena and people notice you. So we're taking you to the big arena, which in the smaller world of this film is like... Three houses down the road is right. the bigger arena, right? And then they're gonna like they're gonna have you compete, and you're you're in love with this chick, but this ruler is corrupt, and this ruler, played by Kiefer Sutherland, who apparently was on a cocktail of hallucinogens. I don't know what the fuck he's doing in this movie, but it's no. not acting. No, I don't know what he was doing. It's like. It's like he forgot to stop playing his character from 24, except that he's a villain here. Because yeah. he's got that same sort of, everything he says is that whole sort of like, we don't have time! <laughs> <laughs> he's like interrogating, where's the bomb? What's a bomb? 
Yeah, it's uh, it's not good. No. I mean, maybe worth watching it for no other reason than the fact that Kiefer Sutherland is laughably awful here. Yeah, it's it's one of the worst villain performances I've ever seen. By anyone. By anyone in any film. Oh, my God. No no wonder he went right back and started doing more 24, because you're like, dude, just stay Just stay match. there. I would have rather watched another Lost Boys sequel with him reprising his role from the yes. first one than to watch this again. It would have to be a prequel. That's true. <laughs> oh, spoiler. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh my God. What a mess. And and, you know, it's Paul W.S. Anderson. So who's surprised? Not me. If it weren't for the Resident Evil video games, this guy would not have a career. You know, and the thing is, I'm one of those people who like, likes the Resident Evil movies as bad as they are. They're just, it's one big uh, zombie soap opera, like mixed with cutscenes from video games. And they're so ridiculous. They're kind of fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, I, think that other, he hasn't made a genuinely good film since 2002's first Resident Evil, which is actually a pretty fun movie. The first I, one. I will say that I highly enjoy the Death Race 2000 oh, remake. Oh, that's right. I forgot you like that. I, I, think, I think that's a lot of fun. And Event Horizon is a legit good movie. Yeah, I can't go with you on that one. It really, it really is a legit movie, but that was 1997 for fuck's sake. And 1995's Mortal Kombat is pretty good. <laughs> it's fun. It is. <laughs> it's, it's fun. When I everyone's like, there were no good video game movies made, I always take a pause and go, Mortal Kombat, and they go, well, okay, sure. Okay, they're not wrong when they say there are no good video game movies, but Mortal Kombat's a shit ton of fun. That's true. (laughs) Uh, This Blu-ray comes with actually a lot of stuff, considering I'm surprised anybody gives a fuck. Yeah, who cares? Uh, Commentary by Paul W.S. Anderson and the producer. Uh, There's 23 minutes of deleted and alternate scenes. Uh, There's a character and cast overview piece, an examination of the historical authenticity. Um, a look at the film's wardrobe, a history of the real eruption, and a look at the the practical and digital effects they did, which admittedly didn't look bad. Not like, terrible. I, I didn't think there was anything wrong with the special effects in this movie. It, I mean, it was in 3D, so it had its moments where it was yeah. like, you don't, that's just, don't do that. Yeah, there's a look in details with the gladiator battles, uh, overview, uh, about 30 minute overview piece where it looks at the film's details versus the real history of the disaster, including plot specifics, characters, and motivations. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff considering there's absolutely no reason you should waste your time with it. Yeah, <laughs> not at all. Ashes to ashes, dust to dull. This movie is not nice. good. Nope. Moving on. You know what? I'm going to say one more thing about W.S. Anderson. Okay. He so understands that his career is dependent upon the Resident Evil franchise that he married the star of the franchise. It's pretty canny. Yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's like I'm gonna it's like I am investing in this entirely. I this is my insurance policy against getting fired off of this franchise. Right. I'm marrying the star. The only real films he's done that are worth seeing are in fact based on video games. <laughs> You know, WS. I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, even the Death Race movie is more based on video games based on the original movie than it's based on the original movie. Yeah, it movie. is. It is so evident. Like, literally, it has, like, character menu screens yeah. within the film. Within the film. Yeah. Anyway, moving on from Pompeii, that disaster, to Doctor Who, the enemy of the world. Boy, they are pumping out a lot of second Doctor stuff lately, which really surprises me. One of the reasons is because some of the. Would lo- you say it's Doctor Two? Yeah, I suppose you could. Doctor 2. If you had to. I I did. I did. Uh, This is the fourth serial of the fifth season of Doctor Who, which uh, has the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton, who I've always much preferred over the first Doctor, but a lot of his episodes were lost. And one of the reasons we're seeing this stuff coming out now is, in fact, because 
originally only episode, the third episode of this run survived destruction, but this is one of that whole batch of episodes that they just found in, I think, a Nigerian television station in 2013. One of the reasons this is bonus feature list, they just want to go, pow, okay, here it is. You guys have never seen this before. And, you know, there you go. And this is a lot better than the last one they put out. The web of, uh, the which was the web of fear, which I thought was okay. The enemy of the world is is fun, if for no other reason, that you get to see Patrick Troughton, who is a very capable actor, play t- dual roles here, where he plays both the Doctor and he plays the enemy of the world, a supervillain character on this planet that they go to that uh, is manipulating everyone and everything for his own gain. And he looks exactly, of course, like the doctor, which leads to the doctor impersonating him on several occasions to try and manipulate the situation himself. Um, it actually is a lot of fun watching them do that. They even get to play versus each other at points. And here, I mean, we're not talking orphan black level like technique here, but mm-hmm. it's still nonetheless is fun to watch. It's not a typical doctor who episode in that there's not a lot of, uh, techno solutions here like there usually are but it is really a lot of fun uh the biggest criticism i can say about this release is once again there's no extra features at all it's just the the series but it's a very solid second uh or second doctor serial and if you know you're curious about it like i was because i hadn't seen a lot of them this is one of the better ones i've seen nice yep all right quick and easy nice and breezy we're going to move on to Orange is the New Black Season 1. Now, this is an interesting thing for us to review uh, because it's a, a Netflix original series. And I thought for sure that, it, not that they wouldn't put it out on Blu-ray, but that they wouldn't really be interested in having critics review the Blu-ray. Because, again, it's it's a series that they produce entirely for their streaming service, and it all comes out at once. I really like the Netflix model, personally. Uh, I do, too. But uh, But they did, in fact, send the Blu-ray, so this is the first time I've gotten a chance to watch it. Uh, and I watched it on the Blu-ray, and, you know, it, it's funny. The first few episodes, I wasn't really sure if this show was for me. I, I recognized that it was a well-made show. It was definitely a show full of great performances, but I was kind of at arm's length with it. And then the episode where they do, like, the elections for, like, the the women's council within the prison is really where it started to hook me, and I, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. The basic premise of Orange is the New Black is that you have this uh, this woman named Piper Chapman, who is very much just a waspy, uh, middle-class, average white woman who happens to be going to prison for 15 months for her involvement in um, some um, basically moving money around for a drug cartel based on the fact that she was in a relationship with a woman who was very heavily a a heroin dealer. And like 10 years ago. It was 10 years ago. That's the thing is that – it came to light that she was involved 10 years after it happened, and the statute of limitations was 12. So, I mean, this is like a real shitty situation. Life it's- fucking you in the ass. Exactly. So she decides to turn herself in and do her time, and it's really about her experience within a women's prison being the exact opposite type of character than those you would expect to be a hardened criminal. Yeah. And it's just really about her trying to survive within the prison. And we finally get to see what happened to Captain Janeway after, you know, she was brought up on charges by the Federation for <laughs> regularly breaking protocol while her ship was off in wherever the fuck it was, way away from the She apparently zone. went to Russia, right? 
Yeah, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you could gain an accent after you were a full-grown adult like that. But apparently, uh, unless, the weirdest... you're, uh, unless you're Madonna, <laughs> right? And I, I think this prison is the weirdest holodeck simulation they've come up with yet. Seriously, but... and it also, you know, I mean, like, I we all knew that like that '70s show character played by Laura Prepon was going to end up in prison and a lesbian. That seemed clear. So that no, was no, absolutely. Surprising. And that she's my favorite part of this show, and like, yet I... she's leaving. Oh, God damn it. Yeah, she left the show like halfway through the second season. I damn think. it. Yeah. She's so good. She's so like there, she's dark and com- and complex, but there's something kind of understated about her. Like she's not I, I don't really know how to describe it. She plays it with such presence without having to go over the top with this character and makes her really interesting in those moments when she's not saying a lot. Yeah. Which and, is really difficult to pull off. Well, one of the dynamics here that makes a show work the best is that uh, Piper Chapman, played by Taylor Schilling, who is you know very much in a heterosexual relationship, engaged to a man. She's very happy about being in this situation. Um, when this all comes to light, just admit, yes, I was in a lesbian affair ten years ago with this woman who is in jail now with her. Uh, and in fact, it seems like is the one who gave the evidence that turned her in too. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of conflict going on between the two while there's also a certain degree of sexual tension, Yeah, you know, and that's like, okay, that's an interesting and very different scenario than what we're used to seeing. That's for sure. Also, a lot of these other characters are just so well drawn where they present them as one sort of almost a cliche of a prison character mm-hmm. and end up having so much depth and being so interesting as it goes along. Not the least of which of course is Kate Mulgrew as uh, the, the Russian sort of like head head bitch in the prison, <laughs> if you will, uh, who, is, who is excellent in this. Very, very good. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a damn good series. And, and it's interesting to me how they skirt a lot of, no, no pun intended, how they skirt yeah. a lot of prison cliches. Because there's an episode early in the season where a screwdriver goes missing and it ends up in the hands of somebody who's having a conflict with somebody else and you think, you think Oz immediately, like, oh, they're going to get stabbed. And the way that they get around that is so fascinating to me because it builds up and builds up to that point and you realize oh they're not going to go the way you expect them to go yeah well it 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 deals with prison uh series cliches by confronting them and then having them yes go a totally different way than you would expect yeah i think that's the real strength of the show is it never leans on any sort of of you know expectations of what it means to be prison fiction um and Thank goodness, because House of Cards, when they put this out on uh, season one on Blu-ray, it had no extras. So yeah. your question was, why would anybody buy it? Exactly. I can see this on Netflix from here till forever. They're not going to stop carrying it on Netflix. It's their show. So why in the world would you buy the Blu-ray? And they figured that out quickly, I think. Yeah, because this does, in fact, have a certain amount of extras on it. There is a audio commentary with the producers. Uh, there is a EPK with some interviews with, uh, apparently this is based on a real story. So there's interviews with the real life version of the Piper character. Uh, there's a look at various cliques and societies that exist within a prison. Uh, there's a separate audio commentary, uh, with a different group or with, uh, I guess the, or I guess it's just a different audio commentary with the same producers, which is weird. Yeah. I don't know why they would not get an actor commentary. Uh, there's a, a look specifically at, at, uh, Captain Janeway, (laughs) (laughs) who's really one of the most memorable characters in this whole thing. And the gag reel on this is actually really funny. Oh, good. Okay. And then a look at the regulations of prison life with cast interviews. So, I mean, it's not a spectacular array of extras, but at least they're trying 
They, and I think it's I think it's one of those things that they figured out when they put out House of Cards. Like, oh, we have to give people a reason to buy this separately yeah. because otherwise they'll just keep. Yeah, you're right. They're never going to take it off Netflix. Netflix produced it. Yeah, it's like who? Okay. What contract is going to run out that they can't show their own show? The one advantage is if you get it on Blu-ray, you can watch it at 1080p instead of 720. But yeah. is that really enough to shot 35 bucks for a Blu-ray? Maybe I not. I don't think so. But I think this is one of those situations with all these extras that if you are a hardcore fan of the show, which it seems like this is a show that's really developed a hardcore fan base, it's the kind of thing that you could easily see someone spending money on just for the extras. True. And as long as they keep doing that, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. And, and you know, I know it sounds weird to us, but there are plenty of people that don't have Netflix. True. They just, they don't, they don't pay for the service. They don't understand. So. Like, there's still this idea going on in people's head that you have to pay as well for the home delivery of discs, like that that's not an option mm-hmm. that, that you can't just get digital. Cause I encounter people who think this way all the time. Like, Oh, when they said that I had to add pay more, I just canceled my subscription. I was like, or alternately you could have just said, all I want is the digital. <laughs> right. And my, my only caveat to that is I feel like I still want to own physical media because yeah. with, with Netflix, Netflix is great. But things regularly go in and out of availability on Netflix, and there are still plenty of things that just aren't streaming. So when I want to watch a movie, I want to be able to watch that movie whenever I want. And Netflix is great, but it's not limitless yet. And when the zombie apocalypse comes, let's face it, we're going to be the entertainment complex and be kings of people who want to come. Yeah. Yeah. And I will be hand-cranking the Blu-ray player on the generator. (laughs) Yes. It'll be great. Yeah. Anyway, that was Orange is the New Black Season 1. We're going to move on to a martial arts movie marathon. Woo-hoo-hoo! It's, uh, this is Shout Factory, who is indeed trying to get into putting out the, the classic martial arts films. Admittedly, a little ham-handedly. But um, you know what? I'm just glad they're doing it. And they are shoving out to DVD here ones that... Except for the most hardcore fans of the industry you have never heard of. Um, <laughs> these are four martial arts films that are shoved onto uh, two discs here in the set. Uh, the, the Really, the most notable thing you can say about them is uh, repeated performances by Sammo Hung, who is in all but one of them, and Carter Wong, who you might remember from Big Trouble in Little China as being sort of the... Uh, uh, he was the the wind guy. I yeah, think. yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Yep. Um, but he is he was a big star of the Shaw uh, brothers era. He was big in that movie too. Yeah. And these are the uh, therefore this is called the Skyhawk, which is a Wong Fei Hung movie. Wong Fei Hung, by the way, is the character the most amount of films have ever been made about. And, you know, the Drunken Master films are about him. The Once Upon a Time in Amer- Once Upon a Time in China films are about him. I mean, just a shit ton of movies are about Wong Fei Hung, and this is yet another one with him. Um, the Manchu Boxer, uh, the Dragon Tamers, and the Association, and these are all. A little crazier, a little weirder than a lot of the ones that are well-regarded generally or more famous. Um, none of these are particularly bad per se. I thought the Skyhawk was suffered a bit from just okay martial arts choreography in it. It was mm-hmm. the worst thing about it. Uh, but all the other three, the Manchu Boxer, the Dragon Tamers, and the Association have excellent martial arts fighting scenes in it. Like really intense, very bloody at points. But the other odd thing about these... It's fucking sexploitation of shit at points, too, <laughs> which I am not used to. Most of the more famous ones are not these type of films, and but especially the, the association, which has a detective that's trying to thwart an evil organization that's running an international prostitution ring. And so this detective, who's regularly 
going and showing up and just being like the basically a big uh, cock blocker at all these things is, <laughs> you know, he goes to this thing that, where there's sex going on. He goes, well, we're shutting this down and there's a big fight and then people are let off to jail. Enter, go to next scene, rinse, repeat. But <laughs> there's so many bizarre sequences. All right. So there's a scene in here that I was like, my jaw hit the floor. Just like, what the fuck? Where they lead this beautiful, I mean, just gorgeous Chinese girl into this big room with all these guys, obviously all culted up in hoods and stuff and with a statue of Satan making love to someone and like bring her to this table and strip her down. And this blonde woman comes out also with just a veneer of outfit. We can see her naked underneath who does this elaborate dance for like five minutes with, you know, like dancing all around her. And like, you know, it's sort of like a a creepy disco song, if you will. (laughs) And you're like, obviously this is, you know, a very seventies movie leading up to a satanic sacrifice. I'm not sure why at this point, but okay. And then it turns out this is just what they do before they perform willful abortions on women. Okay. Yeah, because they wheel over her table surgical tools and she takes off her head and or not her head, but her headpiece and starts, you know, putting her mask on to be able to perform an abortion. It's like totally like it's illegal, but it's not like like immoral, I guess, depending on how you look at it. Not you know, I mean, even like when they're she's explaining, it's like, look, these women they got in trouble. I'm trying to help them out. And you're like, seriously, there's no satanic thing here. That's nope. so weird. That's just what you do before an abortion, apparently, in China. Wow, it's like what conservatives think happens at every abortion clinic. I mean, especially because it keeps focusing on this Satan statue, and I'm like going, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) I mean, they don't really demonize this woman at all after that. It's like, yeah, you're committing a crime, so you got to go to jail, and you got to tell us where these women are coming from that they're getting pregnant, you know, which eventually leads to the said prostitution ring. But, yeah, you're like, wow, what was happening there? I don't what know. The hell was all that? This is a series that you watch with other people. You don't end beer. And beer. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> you know, this is not a sit down and watch these because of the legendary place that they took in the history of Hong Kong films. There's a lot of very familiar people you'll see appear throughout these. Uh, Nora Miao from Fist of Fury, uh, 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 Anthony Lau Wing from The Big Boss, uh, Angela Mao Ying from Hapkido. Like I said, Carter Wong is in a bunch of these. There's a lot of really, really, really familiar people here, but, um, oh, in fact, the Dragon Tamers is John Woo's second film. Huh. You know, one of the ones nobody talks about because it's nothing like John Woo's films that he became known for, the heroic bloodshed stuff. Much like Broken Arrow, it's a film no one talks about. Yeah. It's a, I, I actually like Broken Arrow. Of course you do. You know, that and Face Off hold a special place in my heart. Face off, I'll give a pass to, for um, sure. Uh, yeah, you just don't like it because you're stupid head. <laughs> Well-reasoned. I like that. I like that about your arguing skills. <laughs> Monkey, next time, I'm not going to let you write my rebuttals from now on. <laughs> stupid head. What were you thinking, Monkey? <laughs> Damn it, Monkey. I said it's not my fault. Uh, that's what he sounds like. Yeah, no, totally. Anyway, yeah, I, I do recommend this for what it's worth. It would be nice if they were taking the, I mean, God, they actually spend, obviously they're spending some real money on these American re-releases of stuff, these horror movies that they keep getting. I'm like, there's a giant amount of 70s and 80s martial arts films that are great, that are pretty much not released at all American versions on DVD or Blu-ray, like, ever. Like, I can just list huge amounts of them that I'm like, I would kill to have a decent copy of that here. I mean, even stuff that, you know, I mean, like, you'd think that that seems ridiculous that there's not, like, Ringo Lamb films and John Woo movies. Like, why is there no really decent version of Bullet in the Head by Woo here? But 
you know, this is one of those like, yeah, we bought them for a dollar a piece is what it feels <laughs> like. <laughs> uh, and it's still fun, but it just makes me go, Shout Factory, let's get – you're starting to worry me a little bit with your acquisitions department. That's all. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll see if they get something better in the future. Yeah. Uh, moving on from there, we're going to talk about Gang War in Milan, which is uh, our Polizzi Tecci movie of the week. I did not actually get to see this one. I loaned it to you, and then I never had had a chance to watch it. So it's all you, brother. Uh, now, okay, so I want to talk about the director here very briefly, Umberto Lenzi, who you have to understand that when we talk about Italian exploitation, there are three pillars of Italian exploitation. There is macaroni combat, which are all the Italian-produced cheap war movies. Spaghetti gunplay. Uh, sp- yeah, that's kind of what it is. Um, <laughs> and then there's also uh, the Paletti Tecci movies, which are just like about cops and gangsters, and and you know, uh, they're they're just really cheaply made crime films. And then of course there's the horror movies, things like you know, demon movies, cannibal movies, yada yada yada. And don't um, forget breadsticks. And breadsticks. Umberto Lindsay mm, is someone who has actually worked in all of those worlds. And there are clear points of demarcation where he'll do Polizzi Tecci, and then he'll do Macaroni Combat, and then he closes out his career doing horror movies. Like, he literally shifted from one to the other and made those his focus, like, from that point on. Um, Gang War in Milan is... A very lesser of the Palazzi Tecci movies. It's it's uh, not quite as it's not quite as good as something you might see from Fernando De Leo, who is kind of the king of of the uh, the B gangster movies that come out of Italy in the seventies. But this film revolves around uh, a gangster who uh, is having a bit of a of a scuffle with this. He's, he lives in Milan, and there's this French gangster who's moved into town who is trying to muscle in on his his business. And this movie starts with our our protagonist entering a public pool and finding one of his best prostitutes. Uh, our our protagonist makes most of his money off of prostitution, and he finds his best prostitute dead in the pool. And it's clear that she has been drowned somewhere where there was salt water and then taken here, so it's clearly a message. That's that, a waste of a perfectly good prostitute. Yeah, yeah. It, it's clearly a message that someone is sending him, and the rest of the movie is just about this feud that he has with uh, the French gangster, and then he brings in uh, an associate of an associate who is this sort of legendary hitman who's just returned from America, and it's just about the unraveling conflict uh, going on here. And I I would find this movie more entertaining if the opening ten minutes wasn't just, we're mad at each other, so let's beat up and mutilate a bunch of women. So the way they take their anger out on each other in the beginning of this movie is they keep like, uh, disfiguring and burning and beating up each other's prostitutes. Oh, which really is just like I know a lot of these sort of male centric movies get a or gangster movies, genre movies, whatever get a reputation for being misogynistic. This one earns it in spades. Like oh, it boy. really is just kind of uncomfortable and ugly a film for a very long time. Now they move away from that, but by the time they get into the stuff that's a little bit more interesting and more entertaining. I'm still just remembering, like, yeah, but it was really uncomfortable watching you put out a cigarette on a prostitute because you were angry at some other guy. Like, it just, I don't know. Like, I had a, I had a bit of a problem with that. Um, but oh, I think the ending is, is really solid in this movie and, and where the conflict wraps up. It just, there were some very ugly inroads to get to that ending, I guess, was my, my biggest problem. But I will say uh, Raro Video has done a really good job cleaning this up. It looks better than I think any human being would assume that gang war in Milan would ever look. <laughs> deserve to look. Or deserve to look. Uh, and it, it's a little skimpy on its special features, though. The special feature is there's one, and it's just some guy who is apparently making some really poorly titled 
documentary about this era of, of Italian crime films who they just talk to in his office and he talks about a little bit about the movie, but he's such a douche. <laughs> like he literally turns around in his seat and he's holding a, a Walther and he's like, Oh, you caught me cleaning my Walther, which is very much like the guns they use in this movie and blah, blah, blah. I'm just, and he's like, and I'm making this documentary called, and it's like 40 words long. And I'm just like, are you making a documentary or writing a book? Cause that sounds like a book title. And that's it. That's the only special feature is this one 22-year-old douchebag telling us about... And the booklet. And and the booklet. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, there is a booklet that goes along with it that's actually much more informative than the actual special feature. Uh, but yeah, overall, it w- I think it would have been a better movie, a better entry into this bizarre subgenre as it is if it weren't so misogynistic with the way... Basically, using violence against women as pawns in a power struggle, which I just, I guess... I, I didn't enjoy. Oh, good Lord. This is the same guy who made Cannibal Ferox. So. Yes. Yes, it is. Like I said, in Nightmare City, in fact, uh, which we reviewed a few uh, we, weeks ago. I did ago. enjoy Nightmare City in a very sort of like, <laughs> this is so fucking ridiculous sort of way. And that's that's Umberto Lindsay. Like, he started off doing uh, during doing the crime films, and then he moves on to Macaroni Combat for a little while, and then just gets super into horror. Uh, he actually directed a movie called Black Demons, which is... Also titled Demons 3, even though it has nothing to do with the Demons no, franchise whatsoever. No. If, you liked, if you saw the first Demons, you're like, I want more. Demons 2 is okay. It's all right. It's, it's not as good. Don't see Demons 3. No. Don't even bother. <laughs> or, you know what? Watch The Church, yeah. uh, which is another Italian horror film, and yeah. just assume that's Demons 3. It feels more like a third Demons yep. film. Yeah. So that is Gang War in Milan, and from there we're going to move on to the Revengers. The Revengers. The Revengers. It's like the Avengers, except with revenge instead of avenge. <laughs> if we can't save the Earth, you can make damn sure we're going to revenge it. Now, this is a, a 1972 Western that was really an attempt to grab onto everything that had made more recent Westerns popular, even coming to the point where you've got William Holden, who, of course, is known for The Wild Bunch. Uh, as and on any number of other legendary westerns, and Ernest Borgnine, who I believe wasn't actually cast in any westerns, he just hung around until they filmed him because he's in like all of them. <laughs> Hard to believe that like you watch this in 1972, and he already looks pretty old. Yeah, and he just died this year. <laughs> yeah, he he just died recently, despite looking like he's been 90 for the last 20 years. Um, the thing about this is this is a western that has all the makings to be a lot of fun, a good anti hero type western and completely collapses and doesn't do anything right that it should the idea here is that it's post-civil war uh uh, william holden was a badass soldier during it but now he's been a colorado rancher he's got a wife and kids his son morgan who's a young man has been invited to attend west point and it's it's a very much a turning point in their life, and he's excited and proud and nervous. But he's away hunting, and he sees Comanche Indians riding from the ranch. He comes back, sees his whole family is killed. His son was hanged and murdered. Uh, of course, he's like, you know what? I don't care about anything else. I'm going to kill every last one of these motherfuckers. Tells his friend, sell my ranch, send the money to, to my bank. Um, I'm going to go kill a bunch of motherfuckers. <laughs> and he goes to a Spanish prison and basically buys from the corrupt Warden, uh, a bunch of prisoners from it who are all pieces of shit, scumbags. Is there a dozen of them, perhaps? Right. And there's they're dirty, um, maybe. They're a wild bunch of yeah, guys. Says like if they help him find this one guy who is a white guy who was leading these Comanche Indians who slaughtered his family, he'll do everything in his power to get them full pardons to take care of them. Uh, and almost immediately they all turn on him and say, you know, we're going to steal your money and your horses and uh, we're going to go. But uh, one of them 
ends up taking his side, played by the great Woody Strode, who is Love one, of, Woody Strode. one of the great black actors of his generation, along with Sidney Poitier. Uh, He's in the opening scene of uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. He is indeed. Great fucking actor. Um, and, of course, it turns into the one of the guys all reluctantly come back and work with him to help him get this guy. But there's so many weird turning points in here that diffuse the whole energy of the story. You never really understand why any of these guys are you know, basically end up deciding that they're in supporting William Holden's character here at all. You're like, why? They all left and you understand that they're because they're scumbag criminals. Why'd they come back? It's never really made clear, except it was required for the script. I just, especially the way, you know, this thing sort of peters out and the very ending, which is a sort of, you know, I've just realized at the moment of climax that revenge is bad. Oh, fuck that. Yeah, exactly. Come on. This is a very poorly written script. Commit. With a lot of great character actors in it. And it's a shame because there's all the, like I said, all the pieces to make a top-notch Western. Unfortunately, this just is, it never turns into one. And audiences reacted as that when this, and critics, when it came out. It was a box office bomb. Uh, you know, it was William Holden is a great actor and he's a great lead for these sort of things. But it's just when you put this versus any number of movies it was ripping off, this just doesn't have the satisfaction level with it. I mean, Earth Board 9 was really good in it. Woody Strode is really good in it. But so what when your script just doesn't have any real sense of energy about it? And so. when you get you get the, the you know, two of the stars from the Wild Bunch – you're inviting comparison that's not going to be very favorable. True. Like, that's just, that's a misstep, I think, from the get-go, is they thought they could cash in, and instead, people are like, well, this isn't as good as The Wild Bunch, which we just saw with these two actors. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, they were really trying to do The Wild Bunch crossed with The Dirty Dozen, and it did not work. So, it's a shame. It was interesting to see. It was a, sometimes watching the failures can be as informative as watching the successes. And this might be one of those cases where you can see how you can have all the right pieces in the world, but... You know, you have to be super careful what you do with those pieces. Yeah. You got to find the corners first. Yeah, absolutely. You got to go, you got to start with the corners. So Dirty Dozen meets the Wild Bunch. So an Ernest Borgnine movie meets an Ernest Borgnine movie. And the, uh, the result is also an Ernest Borgnine movie. Yep. Jesus Christ, Borgnine was in everything. Yeah. Borgnine, a good Borgnine movie plus a good Borgnine movie equals a crappy Borgnine movie. <laughs> well, rounding out the week, which is also going to be the title that's our giveaway. And may I add my Pick, Pick of the, of the week. week! Hold on. Hold on. No, I think Orange is the New Black is still my pick of the week. But Grand Piano is a damn good film. And this is a film we actually reviewed during uh, Fantastic Fest. Uh, how to describe this film? Uh, did you guys, you guys remember Phone Booth? Like a very bizarre Larry Cohen film about Colin Farrell answers a phone and then a sniper tells him, like, you can't leave that phone booth or I'm going to shoot you. Imagine that, but instead of a phone booth, you're at a piano. Yes. That's Grand Piano. Yeah, and you're not just sitting at a, any random piano. You are a master piano perform, performer. You were, in this case, Elijah Wood, who was considered to be one of the up-and-coming prodigy greats until he developed stage fright where he broke down during performance. But this is his first comeback performance when he's sitting on stage, very nervous, turns over his music sheet and sees a warning that the sniper, which is very made clear, made clear to him very quickly that this is for real, will shoot him if he plays a single wrong note. Yeah, it's played so perfectly. It's speed on a piano. Yeah. <laughs> or or Liberty stands still long enough to play a concerto. It's yeah, there's a lot of comparisons like that. And it sounds like something that could go horribly wrong. It sounds like such a dopey premise. Yeah. And when you and it is a dopey premise. It is it because it was sold that way. Like I remember when the press releases came out and they were calling it speed with a piano, we we're all going 
what the fuck does that mean? I don't even understand how that would work. And luckily, um, you know, Elijah Wood is, is so damn likable that, you know, he carries a lot of it. But also the script is is just just strong enough that it's like it allows the premise to be a little bit silly. It doesn't take it so seriously that you get annoyed with it. But at the same time, it's not lazy about it. No, no, absolutely it's not. And it finds a way to actually sell you on this premise as it goes along while creating opportunities for our, you know, our protagonist to try and decipher this mystery of why is this happening to him and who is doing it as the film goes along. It, it really does work. This is actually really exciting, edge of your seat type stuff. Yeah, and it's got a great cast. I mean, outside of Elijah Wood, uh, Alex Winter is in this. Yeah, we're like, wow, Alex Winter, you're still alive? Yeah, and he's he's good in it. D. Wallace is in it. Right. Uh, I. I hesitate to say who yeah, the second don't lead say is. Who the second lead is, yeah. even though once you look at the DVD cover, you'll know. I'm still not going to say it. Yeah, but but it's it's a lot of fun, and I think it it creates the right amount of tension, and it's just it's such a thrill ride. Like it really is like a carnival ride that you strap in for at the beginning of the movie, and you just you go with it. Yeah, they find a way for this, despite its incredibly silly premise, to be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and I think no small uh, credit here is due to Eugenio O'Meara, the director who does such a good job of creating tension and creating uh, legitimate peril within this very strange set piece, within this very, uh, you would think, a set piece that's not really consistent with something that you would be able to create tension from. Now, this Blu-ray, uh, the Blu-ray version of this anyway, comes with a 17-minute a, a making of Grand Piano EPK, two director, uh, two interviews, one with the director, Eugenio Mira, and one with Elijah Wood, a, a look at the soundtrack, which was quite good, a, a look at the professional coaches who taught them uh, the, the characters in your concert piano and conducting, um, there's a look at the director by the cast and producers. There's a look at the stunts that were involved. And yes, there are action stunts in this movie, not just somebody trying to play something difficult on the piano. <laughs> um, there's various visual effects, uh, features on here where it takes a look at how they did the stuff in here. Um, there's a thing called Wayne shot, which is the nickname given to a technically complicated moment right through the, in the middle of the film, uh, where you follow a character moving in real time through a theater that didn't actually exist except in in the digital realm and it shows you how it did this one long complicated shot, shot which is really quite interesting uh there's a little promo piece look at a look at grand piano uh and this is like a really solid collection of extras for a film that really should have gone wide i agree you know i mean it's a really fun movie but you can see why distributors were like just they were nervous the about the premise we're yeah. like we're not going to carry that. And Elijah Wood and other guy who we will not mention here aren't quite big enough names to carry a movie theatrically alone these days. Um, sure, but that's still a shame. I hate that he's on the fucking cover. Anyway. It drives me quick. I'm just like, Grr. anyway, I'm still not going to say it. So this is our giveaway. We do actually have two DVD copies thanks to uh, Magnolia who put this out. And for this week's giveaway, as you know, we do sort of a creative writing prompt on Twitter. So first things first, make sure to follow at one of us net on Twitter, and then tweeted us with your bizarre speed knockoff concept. Like, maybe somebody has to eat 100 taquitos in an hour, or they die, or whatever. I want you to... Why is that hard? I do that, like, every Thursday. And maybe that's maybe that's not too difficult for you, but maybe you get some really bad taquitos. Who knows? But basically, I want you to come up with your sort of take on the speed concept, and uh, tweet that at us with a hashtag Grand Piano Giveaway. We'll pick our two favorites. We'll send uh, we'll send copies to those peeps, and please, U.S. residents only. There you go. All right, that's our show. That's our show. We did it. We're done. It's over.
even monkey. Good night. Oh, wait. Uh, I guess I got to remind you all that you can once again find us on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher. Follow the show at DigiNoiseCast, the website at One of Usnet, or us individually. I'm at Guy Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And, and Monkey's at All Your Base Belong to Monkey. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not, but they sh- he should be. It's a hell of a Twitter handle. Uh, and definitely, guys, please use those Amazon links and consider becoming a subscriber. That's the way we can continue to bring this content to you, and we appreciate all of the uh, all of the generosity shown by our, our fans so far. It has really been touching, and we appreciate it. We do. We like to be touched. I like touching. Anyway, I'm going to wrap the show as I usually do by reminding you... Touch me, I want to be dirty. Oh, boy. Tell me, tell me, fulfill me. I'm terrified. What's happening? No release is too big. No release is too small. It's not all that's too big. Oh, God. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. Good night. Touch it. No, I don't want to...